Welcome to Multilingual Montessori, a podcast where we discuss multilingualism, multiculturalism, and raising children from a Montessori perspective. I'm Gabrielle Kotkov, an AMI Montessori guide and TESOL instructor, and I'm the founder of the Multilingual Montessori website and Instagram account. And by the time you're listening to this episode, I will also be the brand new holder of a Master of Science in Child Studies degree. On this podcast, I interview parents who are raising multilingual children, Montessori guides who have taught in bilingual classrooms or who are themselves multilingual, and adults who grew up speaking two or more languages. We discuss the intersection between language and identity, how to find balance when speaking two or more languages in a monolingual environment, and all the joys and challenges that we experience along the way. Today I'm speaking with Linda Apostol, a Montessori teacher, parent, and homeschool coach who lives in Southern California with her husband and two children. Linda has worked in both public and private schools as a teacher, instructional coach, and administrator. During the pandemic, she decided to homeschool her young children, and we talk about how that decision came about in our conversation. When she began sharing her homeschooling experiences on social media, she found out that other parents were seeking guidance about how to homeschool their own children in a Montessori way. She decided to share her knowledge and experience by becoming a homeschool coach, and she developed a coaching program to help parents homeschool their children guided by Montessori pedagogy and principles. Social justice and global perspectives are important to Linda's work, and we talk about how homeschooling can be a way to work towards social justice and creating inclusive Montessori spaces. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Linda. Hi, Linda. Thanks so much for being on the podcast today. It's so nice to meet you. Thank you, Gabrielle. Nice to meet you, too. Um, so to start, I would love for you to introduce yourself and your family. Tell us where you live and what you do. Um, I, my name is Linda Apostle. I am uh, probably most known for my, my uh, website and my Instagram, The Montessori Teacher. Um, I am currently a Montessori homeschool co- coach and a Montessori lifestyle coach. Uh, for parents and untrained teachers mostly. I still, I do do some uh, private schools and and daycare. Um, I have two children. I have a 10-year-old daughter named Kira, and then I have a five-year-old son named Nico, and we live in San Diego, California. Awesome. Um, So tell us about how you first found out about Montessori and what were your early teaching experiences or experiences with Montessori like? Okay, so I first found out about Montessori when I started my first master's degree in curriculum and instruction. Um, I started my first master's degree when my daughter was two weeks old. And um, through that, you know, we were exposed to all sorts of curriculums and different methodologies and stuff. That's kind of the whole zhush of that program. And one of them was Montessori. And it really kind of stuck with me and it piqued my interest so much so that um, I call it being bitten by the Montessori bug because next thing you know, I was buying all the books and you're probably, you're probably familiar with that um, and reading all you can and kind of getting um, uh, really, really deep into, into Montessori. And I, I went straight to the books. I went straight to all into the Absorbent Mind and to the Maria Montessori books. Um, I then started looking for preschools for my daughter when she was 18 months old. I was that parent. Um, A lot of it was because I lived in the Bay Area and there's a lot of wait lists, sometimes a year wait list and stuff like that. So if you wanted to get your kid in, uh, you had to um, start looking really, really early on. And I, you know, like most parents, wanted to provide the best education that I could to my child. I was still kind of undecided on whether it was Montessori or something else, but there was a Montessori school actually right around the corner from our house. And it always kind of piqued my interest every time we went for walks because the children were playing really nicely. I toured that school. It was the first school that I toured and I absolutely fell in love. But 
being the person that I am, um, an overanalyzer, um, I toured 13 other schools <laughs> um, before I came to my decision. And uh, finally, I said, you know what, nothing compares. A lot of them I would walk in and straight out. And so um, I enrolled my daughter at Montessori school and became a very, very active parent. Um, as far as my teaching experiences, I actually started as a traditional teacher. I started as a long-term substitute um, teaching first grade bilingual children in um, the Mission District in San Francisco. And um, from there, I, I really loved teaching. It was really hard. I had many times, many days where I was crying. Um, but they asked me back and uh, I decided to go for it and go get my credential. And uh, I went straight into the classroom. I actually never student taught. I always just simultaneously uh, did my full, worked full time and went to school and all the things all at the same time. Um, I started as a kindergarten teacher and um, I would say that my experiences, oh my gosh, first grade bilingual, kindergarten, fourth grade, sixth grade, eighth grade, eventually became an instructional coach for English language learners. Ooh, and then, um, then I was a, a coach at the district office for English language development and English language arts. I, in all sorts of schools and different districts, high income, low income, homogenous, uh, heterogeneous um, in Texas and in California. <laughs> so um, I've got quite a bit of range, I guess, of experiences there. And again, it was um, in both traditional and Montessori. And now I do want to mention that when I, I did start teaching before my child was born and uh, when I enrolled my daughter in school, so she was around two years, nine months when she started Montessori primary. And um, at that time, I was working as an English language development and English language arts um, instructional coach at the district office. So part of my job was to go into teacher classrooms and observe um, teachers and give them feedback on how, on their methods and stuff like, kind of like kind of what I do still. Um, and, but at that time I was also very involved in my daughter's school. So it was very interesting to have this perspective and this education and be doing that professionally going into classrooms and then side by side observing in my own daughter's classroom very frequently and observe just the the differences side by side um, of Montessori and traditional settings. So that was really fun. Yeah. Do you think that you are able to bring any of those elements that you were observing into your work in traditional schools? Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. I actually, um, when my daughter was a little bit older, she was, uh, I would say around five, I decided to, no, probably four right? Probably about a year into it. I decided to leave my district office job. I was so disillusioned with the whole thing. And um, I was also having some fertility issues. And so because of the stress. And so I took a step down and went back into the classroom. And, um, you know, three months later, I got pregnant, but that's neither nor there. <laughs> um, but it was uh, very intentional at that point, because I was able to actually put into practice all of these things that I had been observing and, you know, all the classroom, dozens of classrooms um, and in Montessori. And so when I went back into the classroom after having that experience, um, it was very interesting. I had flexible seating in my classroom. I had, um, I didn't have any desks at all. I literally brought in kitchen tables and thrifted things and I had different areas of the classroom. Um, in my own classroom, I had, um, even in the way that I was teaching, I tried my best to maybe to give choice, give a lot of student choice, have a lot of student feedback, very project based. It was very much influenced by Montessori um, until I decided just to do it all and just go into Montessori fully. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely influenced even my traditional teaching for sure. Um, so what what are your favorite things about Montessori and what drew you initially to Montessori and what 
kept you there and made you decide to go all in on Montessori? My favorite thing, the thing I absolutely love about Montessori, and this might be a little, uh, I don't, I don't know if I've heard other people talk about it, but maybe it's a shared sentiment. It's grounding the child in reality. That is my absolutely favorite thing because it's the thing I respect most um, about the Montessori method and the philosophy. Um, So, you know, (laughs) Maria talks about how um, we lie to our children because for the manipulation and comfort or for, we manipulate our children for comfort or entertainment of the adult, for the comfort and entertainment of the adult. And this type of manipulation or lying, um, as little or big as they might be, it actually discourages critical thinking because the child, um, especially when they're very little, right? They, um, they're, they're very credulous and they, they don't have a lot of experiences or background knowledge to be able to make critical decisions or what have you. And they have a deep bond and a deep trust of their caregiver. And so they will believe what you tell them. If you tell them, you know, there's an elf that is watching your every move all day long, they believe in that. But that manipulation that we consider to be entertaining, or we might um, sweep under the rug for our own comfort or our own nostalgia, you know, it, it encourages the this, um, our ability to be objective in how we analyze an issue so that we can form um, judgment, right? To think critically, we must have a strong sense of reality. And so I really appreciate how Montessori um, really respects the child and their ability and their development and where they are, meets them where they are and kind of, supports us in really being a guide in their development versus being, you know, a leader or pulling them along or dragging them along in the experience, but really guiding them and, and accepting them and respecting them for, for where they are so that we can raise critical thinkers. Yeah. Yeah. I, that, I love that aspect too. And that's one that I think I um, struggled to understand or to really grasp when I was going through Montessori teacher training, and then I continued to struggle to explain it to Mm. parents. Um, So I appreciate your explanation. I think that you articulate really well why we're um, really doing it for the benefit of the children, not Mm. to, you know, not because we don't want them to have Christmas magic with Santa Mm. or, or things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Not necessarily to avoid fantasy. And everyone knows Anyone that follows me knows that I'm like a huge like Disney fan and animation fan. So it's not really about avoiding fantasy. It's really about being honest and and fostering a, a respectful relationship with your child. That's not grounded on manipula- on any type of manipulation. Uh, Okay, so tell me about your journey to the decision to homeschool your children. So it was an interesting journey because I'm going to be honest, right? I I grew up very low income. I grew up in the projects and on the border of uh, Ciudad Juarez in El Paso, Texas. And um, homeschooling is very far removed from from that reality and so I never the if the thought had occurred to me earlier if the thought had occurred to me that this could actually be a reality for me I would have definitely considered starting sooner Um, but uh, the thought never crossed my mind because my knowledge and experience with homeschooling and homeschooled children was very limited by, you know, stereotypes and stories I would tell myself um, around my place in society and, and what homeschooling is and who gets to homeschool and who doesn't, you know. Um, so really my journey to, to homeschooling started during COVID. And um, at the time I was the director of teaching and learning at a public Montessori school in Texas. and um, 
as such, you know, um, when COVID happened and the orders for lockdown were given across the nation, uh, we happened to be on spring break. And um, I was the director of teaching and learning. So it was my job to get the whole school up online. <laughs> Um, so that was a very interesting experience that we shall talk about later. But um, nonetheless, that experience really like shook me to my core um, because everything kept all the influence from superintendent and other directors was very much um, standardized, 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 standardized. And I was like, no, we cannot, we cannot, we cannot. And then the murder of George Floyd happened. And um, there was a lot of emotional, I think, upheaval going on all at once that we all experienced as, as a nation um, collectively. Um, but I think that those events really led to me accepting um, and maybe finding the courage to um, voice or, or like outwardly grapple with um, my own participation in white supremacist ideology. And as I was creating, um, standardizing Montessori for a virtual platform and all the systems that come into play in that role, because you know you, you kind of have to standardize and get a thousand kids in order and get and get. Um, my school was also low income, so um, a lot of our families didn't even have access to computers. And how are we going to provide access? And it was a very tumultuous time, but everything we were doing was to standardize and to meet this ideology that is dominant and no matter how hard I tried to fight it, I found myself constantly in circles where it was very apparent, especially on Zoom meetings, where I see that there's 12 people and I'm the only person of color and how quickly I was just silenced. And it just kind of made everything really apparent. And so when it came time to go back to school, um, first off, it's Texas, and there was a, a lot of inflexibility with how I would go back to work. I am immunocompromised. My son is immunocompromised. And as director, they wanted me to be front of the lines. And, and uh, you know, this is before vaccines and all of that. Um, be the one taking temperature checks of a thousand people a day. If there was co somebody with symptoms, it was my job to take them out and isolate them and all of that. So I was going to be, you know, exposed and I had, I was immunocompromised. So was my child. There were lots of other options. There were other directors. There was a superintendent who decided to stay home and all this kind of stuff. There were just, uh, the inequities were just really, really highlighted for me. And so without a plan B, um, after giving them doctor's notes and everything, um, I decided to quit my career and I started homeschooling my children and I didn't, I didn't get unemployment. I didn't have a job. I just, I just left. They, I felt like they were giving me a choice between my child and, um, and my career. And so the choice was very obvious to me. Mm. That's how that started. <laughs> um, in a more technical sense, I'm going to be very transparent. I don't think that homeschooling was very difficult for me. Um, that transition was not very difficult. Um, we'd already been home for a little while. And since I was in charge of creating all these programs, um, I, I think I, I had a lot of systems that I had created over decades um, in place that I was able to adapt and kind of go into homeschooling. And I recognize that there's a great deal of privilege in that, right? Just having the experience, the education and all of those things and be able to go into homeschooling quickly. Um, but I think that the hardest part for me in my homeschool journey was de-schooling, um, letting go of the school culture, um, 
a culture that I had, I thought I would be a part of forever, um, letting go of my career that I had um, worked so hard for and invested hundreds of thousands of dollars in my education um, and persevering through my daughter's uh, de-schooling because she had been in the system for so long. So to me, that was the waiting game of going through that process and figuring out what this looks like at home um, is what was a, a lot harder. Mm. What, um, what differences have you seen in yourself and your children from the first year that you were homeschooling and then this past year? Um, uh, I think that there is just um, a lot more confidence, I would say. Um, I, I don't think I've ever, and again, it sounds very privileged, but you know, we're, we're honest. That's what I'm about. I'm about transparency, but I don't think I was ever not confident about my ability to teach and what have you. Matter of fact, I think that's what made my decision a little bit easier because I said, you know, no, I can do that myself and whatever, you know, that fluffed my own feathers there. But, um, I was, I wasn't confident in a lot of my abilities as a parent and how those two roles would come together and how I would support, especially my daughter who has ADHD and has a very hard time with transitions and big change. And she had already been, you know, she went on spring break and she just never went back. She didn't get a chance to say goodbye to her classmates. She didn't get a chance to do any of that. And so she'd already been experiencing all these changes and it's already hard for her to go through all that. Um, so I definitely was feeling um, uncertain about my ability to support her through that um, emotionally while I was also going through my own um, upheaval and, and being um, worried about you know, COVID and my son being immunocompromised and us being exposed. And there was just a lot going on there. And I think that um, that now uh, that's, that's the biggest difference is, is I've become much more flexible and I've, uh, I've become more self-compassionate, I would say, mm -hmm. and given myself a lot more grace. Um, when I make mistakes or when I, um, you know, I'm able to now see it as part of the learning process versus beating myself up about it. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting that you say that because in Montessori, we talk a lot about giving children grace and, you know, teaching children that mistakes are part of the human experience and that we don't expect perfection from them. And we don't want them to expect perfection from themselves. So it's also a nice reminder to turn that on ourselves as adults and give ourselves that same amount of grace. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. We forget that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, so tell me about the decision to help other families in their homeschooling journeys. Well, um, it actually just kind of happened. <laughs> <laughs> it just kind of happened. Um, I started sharing on Instagram with like 10 followers or whatever I had um, back in October 2020. Um, and I was just sharing um, to form community, honestly, because I, I was trying to find community and, and folks who were like-minded. And again, I was going through my de-schooling process and I was so used to just being in community with other people, with coworkers, with children. And, and uh, I was trying to find community. And so that's why I started Instagram. Um, I would say a few months later, so my journey started maybe September, October. Um, and right around Christmas time, a follower, you know, you have DMs and you have conversations. And a follower suggested, they're like, you know what, Linda, I'm, I'm so surprised you've been able to like just do this in three months. This would take years for people, yada, yada. You should do it. 
And of course, you know, I have a lot of perspective on a lot of things. And honestly, all of the, the changes I've done in my career were very intentional because I hoped to one day open, you know, my own school with like radically different education. And so I was like, I need to gain all this experience so that I can have a good, pers well-rounded perspective so I could create something new. Um, but as much as perspective as I had, I did lack the homeschooling perspective and that journey that homeschoolers would go through. So in conversation with a lot of my followers, I was able to uh, realize that, oh, like this is actually a lot more challenging for a lot of people out there. Um, and that same follower who suggested it, uh, she then offered to pay me to show her uh, what I was doing. And at the time I was unemployed. So I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I didn't know how much to charge. I didn't have anything. I didn't have any templates. I didn't have anything at all. Um, but I said yes. And then I posted one 15 second story saying, hey, I'm going to do this. If you want to join in, let me know. Three people signed up and um, working with those first few clients gave me a great deal of insight. Um, and it sparks months of, of market research. And honestly, those uh, first I want to say first three to five clients really helped me build uh, my program. I was building it. I would have a session. And then that week before the session, I would be like creating the session as I went. So um, shout out to my first five clients. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I love how that grew in such a such an organic way from this real need from the community. Um, what are the most common challenges or questions that come up in your work with homeschooling parents? The most common challenges or questions. Um, honestly, I think that when, when people are first DMing me or emailing me, looking into whether or not to start my coaching program, um, a lot of folks <clears throat> really just, um, aren't really aware of how this is a possibility for them. Similar to me, right? They're, they're, they've seen it, um, but usually it's just like, that's not for me. Like they, it's not even considered. But then by the time they reach out to me, they've probably been following me in a few accounts for a little while. And they're starting to like turn the wheels and be like, you know, this sounds like this might be something that I really want to do. But they have a really hard time seeing how they how this fits into their existing reality. So I think one of the the most common questions is can this work for blank, right? Usually is can I homeschool my children if I am working full time? Can I homeschool my children if I'm working outside of the home? Can I homeschool my children if we have a single income? Can I, right? if we have a small space, if we have what have you. So the, the most um, common question is, is whether or not they can, they can make it work. And honestly, the that correlates with the biggest challenge that I see. Because in order to homeschool, I really do believe that you have to kind of have an alternative mindset. You kind of have to have this disposition to either to learn, to want to learn how to do things differently. And when you're trying to make something fit into your existing reality, whatever it is, it's, it's really difficult. It's really difficult. So I think the biggest challenge is opening yourself up to possibility and relearning what school would look like um, outside of the confines of an institution. One of the things that you talk a lot about is social justice and homeschooling. So I would love to hear what social justice homeschooling means to you and uh, how homeschooling can serve as a way to achieve or approach social justice. Yeah, you know, when I first started homeschooling, I, I had a lot of very conflicting emotions because I, um, 
I recognize that the, the immense privilege to even be able to recognize it as an option. Um, but at the same time, I'm fighting, you know, fighting a lot of guilt because social justice as defined by society is, is about the institutions at play. So if you're getting yourself out of that institution, how are you supporting that institution, right? So I was grappling with a lot of those ideas. And so I've definitely done a lot of unpacking and a lot of research and a lot of work around this and what it means. So homeschooling for social justice um, to me means taking your power back in a world that feels chaotic. Um, it means centering yourself on what you can control so that you can strengthen your uh, physical and mental immunity to all the noise that is happening. Um, so for me, uh, tangibly, that has meant that I've regained a, a control of the narrative um, and the environment of my children so that um, I'm hoping that I can raise social agents and global citizens instead of versus um, passive consumers of a white dominant culture. So it is radically different. And in a nutshell, if I had to put it in one word, homeschooling for social justice to me means decolonizing, right? So how can it, uh, your second question I think was, how can homeschooling serve as a way to achieve uh, social justice, which is a more ma macro kind of level question, right? Um, so I think many times we focus on, on the systems, right? And, and, and that's, that's good, we should, right? Because the, the problem is systemic um, and it's much bigger than, than any one individual. But so many times we are so focused on, who, what is it that Ashley says? Ashley, um, my co-founder of Rooted um, for Afrocentric Montessori. Um, Ashley said, you know, you're so focused on somebody else's yard or on somebody else's house um, that you, you don't even clean up yours, right? <laughs> like you gotta, you gotta start by cleaning your own house, <laughs> right? Um, and, and so I think that if we, if we keep the conversation at that macro level, it becomes this, we very easily get caught up in the cycle of inaction, right? Um, in order for us to shift that into a cycle of action, then we need to, you know, regain that control and focus on, on center ourselves and what, what's within my circle of control and what's within my circle of influence. So to build on that, this is kind of the context um, for, for this, right? Um, decolonizing, right? Um, as it stands, right, educational systems and institutions really perpetuate racism and white supremacy, right? Anything from standardized testing to factory work structure of the school day, right? The, the factory worker, um, from whitewashed history to lack of representation in the teaching process, profession, um, from the school to prison pipeline, and the criminalization of students of color to teacher silence in the face of race talk. So white supremacy is really woven into the fabric of, of, of America. And I think we, we need to be very intentional on how we combat it and, and realize that social justice is both a process and, and a goal, right? Mm -hmm. So social justice, it is the, the goal that we all have equal participation in all aspects of society, right? That <clears throat> it is shaped by all of us. All of the aspects of society are shaped by all of us to meet our individual needs. Um, but it also involves um, having a sense of responsibility um, toward and with others, having a sense of community and, and 
in society and the broader world in which we live and having certain values that help guide you um, in becoming a social agent of change. And all of those things start in the home, right? And so to me, being part of these institutions, as I was, as I talked about the George Floyd and my radical acceptance, I, I thought, you know, a lot of my work um, was around English language learners, for example, um, was around teaching ways to meet the needs of English language work learners, um, facilitating all those standardized tests to measure their fluency in, um, in their native language versus English and what have you, creating programs. All the while, this whole time, I'm teaching teachers how to teach English. I'm teaching them how to, how English language develops. I'm teaching them all of these things. Being blind to the fact that I'm perpetuating white supremacy. What are the implicit messages in everything that's systemic, right? that a child comes in, a Spanish speaker, and, and in a lot of cases in the, the, the communities that I worked with, right? With the goal of learning English and stripping them of that identity. And it was a, oh, I get emotional. It still is a very disheartening, um, and honestly, it's like angry. I don't know. That's the feel that I can, that those are the feelings I feel that I was part of this colonizing project because that's what I was helping do. That's what I was aiding and doing. And so, yeah, that's, that's where it's at. It starts in your home. So many people lose their native language. They lose their their entire identity. And this has been going on since the beginning of time, right? This is how white supremacy works. And it's going on right now, right? You're, you're not considered, you're, you're a, as an English learner, unless you're reclassified, right? Going from being an English learner to English language proficient or English proficient, um, you're held back, you're put into resource classes, you don't have electives, you don't have all of these things, you're, you're um, denied opportunities, right? And so they create this whole system under this guise that this is what's good for you so that you can have opportunities. When my question is, why? Yeah. Why do I need to have a certain level of proficiency in English as judged by you to be afforded certain opportunities. Anyway, I kind of went on a tangent, but I feel like that's, that's kind of the zhush of it all. There's just a white supremacy is really a, a project of psychic conditioning and toxic belonging, really. Mm. Um, tell me a little more about Rooted and, and how that started and what work you do with that. So Rooted is a, uh, a love, a passion project um, between um, me and Ashley from Afrocentric Montessori. She also runs Gather School in Atlanta. Um, Ashley was actually my client. Um, and I supported her in kind of creating and establishing the systems that she has for her school gather. Um, and we, you know, as with, as with a lot of clients, I formed a very deep bond with her and we aligned very, very much in a lot of values. And we really found that, you know, a lot of these stereotypes for homeschooling are, are are there for a reason, right? Because it is white dominant and Christian. And however, since COVID and, and this collective awakening that we've all been going through, um, 
there's been a whole new sector of homeschoolers who are doing it for very similar reasons as the one that, that I just described. Um, but we don't yet have the communities that, that have been formed out there. And it can feel very exclusive when you go to co-ops or you go on online pages or online groups um, that are very, the narrative again is very much um, dominated by white Christian values. And um, we are, we're wanting, we wanted to create this community that decenters whiteness, where we are able to move beyond the niceness and move beyond the anti-biased, anti-racist work that comforts um, folks, <laughs> white fragility, right? Um, and just kind of have the talk and, and create a, a place where we just kind of call it what it is. And we're not seen as experts, we are seen as human. And uh, just come together in, in community and kind of process things and learn together and um, just be there and support one another. Yesterday we had our first live session and um, we're still working out the kinks on how to market it and all that, but um, some people showed up, which is good, right? Um, and it was so, it was so nice. It was so nice to just, sit in community. It really is an act of self-compassion to not isolate yourself. And we process the current events um, in uh, Uvalde, Texas and in Buffalo and what that means for us and, and all everything that had been brought up for us. And we cried together and we um, supported one another. And we talked about how to talk to our children about it. And we gave answers where we had them and didn't where we didn't. And, uh, you know, we talked about self-compassion and um, our ancestors and how there's so much value in, in what they, they have taught us, right? This has been going on for centuries and they have persevered and, and we're here. So, what do we have to learn there, right? And so it was really good discussion and we ended with like a, with a meditation and it was, it was good. It was everything that I was needing for sure. So it's really a place to, to find community and be in community with others that are willing to take challenge and have, a, have those conversations without, you know, getting caught up in their feelings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk a little bit about bilingualism. Um, so you had mentioned that you taught in bilingual classrooms and it within, worked with English language learners. Um, so now, what does bilingualism look like in your family these days and in your homeschooling routine? Yeah, so I am, a, you know, as I mentioned, I'm a native Spanish speaker. Um, I was born in, in El Paso in Texas. Um, but when I was months old, I, um, my family, we moved back to Mexico. I'm from Mazatlan, Sinaloa. And um, I was there for my early childhood years. And when my parents divorced, my mother and I moved back to Texas. Um, but I grew, out, I grew up as a cross-culture kid um, where I would spend the school year in Texas. And I would spend... Um, summer and and Christmas winter break in Mexico and Mazatlan so um that's that's how I grew up uh it's very interesting to grow up that way I think in uh, especially growing up on the border because I feel like border towns we kind of have our own little subculture um but it it feels like you always have one foot in one place and the other, like you're <laughs> like you're both literally and figuratively, you know, straddling um, both cultures. And you're not American enough for the U.S. and you're not Mexican enough for for Mexico. And so it's we just kind of create a little subculture, I guess. And so, um, I when I uh, growing up. 
I, uh, you know, again, honesty and transparency. I was, I tried really hard to get rid of my accent. And I think for the most part, I succeeded. Um, I tried really, really hard. There were a lot of implicit messages and microaggressions and systems in school when you go in as a Spanish speaker, um, you know, identifying me as having some sort of learning disability when I didn't. Um, I tried really hard to get rid of my Spanish accent. And so I struggled a lot in my teenage years with identity. Um, it took me a long time to even identify as, as Mexican. Um, I would try something less um, with a better Latino reputation, right? Because Mexico is kind of like the, it's considered like the America of the Latin American world, right? It's not the highest social status. So I would say something like I'm Puerto Rican and Cuban or something. Um, I would lie about my ethnicity um, and I would take, uh, I was obsessed with the movie Clueless. Now I'm aging myself. Um, and I would watch it on repeat, that and Saved by the Bell, um, to mimic the, the accent because I wanted to get rid of it. So I'd be like, oh my God, <laughs> right? So like, because it's so exaggerated that it really helped me um, learn that. I, I now regret it. I now regret working so hard in doing that. Um, when I moved to California, it was quite a bit of a culture shock. I was a freshman in high school and um, there was a lot more diversity than in El Paso. In El Paso, it is largely Mexican and Caucasian. Um, and uh, long story short, I married, my husband is an English speaker. He's not bilingual. Um, I've gone through a lot of, I had already gone through a lot of um, unpacking before I even met him. But then we had a child and he was a stay-at-home dad and we tried doing the whole one parent, one language thing, but me working full-time and going to school full-time get my master's degree um, made it really unsustainable because I just ended up being a translator. Everything I would say, he'd be like, what'd you say? What'd you say? What'd you say? So that was another issue. I um, had to come to terms with the fact that my children would be native English speakers and that they would learn Spanish as their second language. So it wasn't until my second child was born that I started um, more formally speaking to my children in Spanish um, and teaching them Spanish. So, Right now in my homeschooling, um, we incorporate it as an area of, of as a content area. Um, and we incorporate it throughout our day in certain tasks like uh, routines. So we incorporate it into um, like bedtime and bath time because a lot of those are commands as much as we hate to say it, right? <laughs> it's time for this, right? Um, or let's get your rubber ducky, let's do the boat. So a lot of those are commands. And so since they already are familiar with the routine, really learning Spanish um, in those times has become a lot easier. So right now we are incorporating it formally as a content area in our homeschooling and also informally in um, routines of our day. So that's, that's kind of what it looks like right now. So what are your favorite bilingual or Spanish language resources, either that you use in your homeschooling or that you refer your clients to? So my, I have, I have several, right? Of course, I, I would be uh, remiss if I didn't like give myself a shout out. Um, <laughs> um, I do have a collaboration with the Montessori, Modern Montessori Guide. Um, I really respect her knowledge and her experience. She's also a certified elementary, Montessori elementary teacher. And she creates beautiful, beautiful products that even if I tried, I would not be able to, 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 to recreate that. 
Um, so we started a, a collaboration and I interpret all of her products um, into the Spanish language. So right now, um, all of the math and all of the cultural products that she has are also available in Spanish. And we are currently working on creating language. Language is a little bit trickier because it really requires recreating a lot of the, the things. It's more than an interpretation. So I really love that. Um, I We do work really hard for them to be um, Montessori materials, not Montessori inspired. And so uh, that's one. I really like Paso a Paso um, from Escuela Viva. Um, they offer, it is a, they're based out of Spain and they are the only ones that I know of that have a comprehensive Montessori curriculum in Spanish and they have it through elementary. So they have primary all the way to age 12 through upper elementary um, in all the content areas. So if you are wanting to teach your child in Spanish, um, then you know that is definitely my recommendation. And I myself own them. So I've, I've vetted them and I, I myself use the language one to teach um, Spanish in my home. Um, the, where else, where else are we? So I also really like um, some accounts. I think that some accounts are very useful and very helpful. Uh, Montessori Madre, who, um, who was also my client, Christina, um, she teaches um, Spanish to her children first. And so um, she's following sort of like an immersion model and she, where she will be teaching Spanish in the primary years and she will start introducing one content area at a time, um, starting around kindergarten age in English to start transitioning into English and to build that trend uh, by literacy. So Montessori Madre, um, I definitely love her. Uh, Blanca, who is also my client, Lifestyle, Blanca from Whole Child Home. Um, she actually has her child enrolled in school and she started speaking Spanish to her child. And um, we're working together to for her to complement um, the English only school curriculum that he's receiving when continuing that Spanish language uh, pathway to biliteracy um, at home. So it's kind of like a supplemental way of doing Montessori so that you can encourage biliteracy. So I would definitely say Montessori Madre and Whole Child Home are good resources for um, Instagram. Awesome. Uh, and you mentioned that you tried to keep the resources that you were working on uh, translating Montessori versus Montessori inspired. Can you explain that difference? So um, Montessori materials would align to Montessori lessons um, as presented in the Montessori curriculum. So the Montessori curriculum itself calls for um, certain materials, nomenclature, um, which are you know, three-part cards with a definition. Um, and sometimes you know, they might call for certain physical materials that would be okay to have as in a printable option. So to me, Montessori, a Montessori printable versus a Montessori inspired would be one that aligns to the Montessori lesson, that it's not an extension of a Montessori lesson and it's not a repetition of the Montessori lesson, but it actually, you can use it in conjunction with your albums to present a Montessori curriculum, right? We do have some Montessori inspired, which means, but most of it is Montessori. So Montessori inspired would be that, oh man, it could mean so many things. Um, in a nutshell, Montessori inspired means that you are taking aspects of Montessori. Right, so in Montessori, there's a method, there's a philosophy, there's a curriculum, there's materials, there's different aspects of what makes up Montessori. Um, to be Montessori inspired means that you're taking one, two, or three 
aspects of Montessori and recreating in your home, but you're not doing you're not doing all aspects of of Montessori. When it comes to materials or printables, that might mean something like um, creating three part cards on. I'm going to think of one that we did. Okay. Um, we did one on, it's called Peacemakers. And we basically created nomenclature cards um, with information on um, activists around the world um, and peacemakers and people who are well known. So we created three part cards, we created nomenclature. So nomenclature is would be considered a Montessori material, but the content is not really a Montessori lesson. So it's more Montessori inspired. So if a parent is listening to this and thinking, um, maybe homeschooling is something I'm interested in, what questions would you tell them to ask themselves or what things should they consider when they are thinking about possibly going the homeschooling route? Mm, that's a really good question. I think, um, first off, I, I think it, it would be a good practice to write it down instead of keeping it in your head. Um, sometimes writing things down, you know, that the hand does, the mind remembers, right? Um, sometimes when we write things down, we could really process and we're able to put things together more cohesively than um, jumbled up in our brain and some abstract idea in our brain. We're able to see it more concretely. So I think that, you know, that's good practice. Write it down, whether it's a pros and cons or whether it's something that says, you know, why my why? Why do I want to do this, right? So write, write that down, whatever your process is. And then I think good questions to ask yourself are starting with, with your why. why. Why am I considering this for, for my child? And write it down and reread it. And really with a critical lens, <laughs> if it is more about you if it's because it's your you have some sort of irrational fear of something um or it would be more comfortable or you want to wake up whenever you want to wake up or whatever it is then those are probably not very good reasons i do have a post about good and bad reasons to homeschool that might be helpful um but if it really is grounded in the child right? Whether it's safety or an experience that you want to, to provide to your children or a lifestyle that you're hoping to incorporate. For example, you want to have more freedom to travel. Um, you want to have, you want to be able to go and, and make connections to what they're learning um, in the moment, not wait for some field trip three months down the road, right? Um, those are all important reasons. Um, so why? Why? And then analyze why. The second question I would ask myself is, um, can I make this work? Or how can I make this work? And when you're asking yourself that question and you write it down, a lot of things are going to come up for you. A lot of things are going to come up for you on why you can't make it work. <laughs> right? And that's okay. That's why you're writing it down and you're going to go back to it and you're going to read it. And you're going to try to reimagine how it can work for you. And now you can actually answer that question. Mm -hmm. So why and how can this work for me? And this might involve big changes, right? Um, some families um, that I've worked with have left the country because they couldn't afford to do it while they were still in the United States, right? Some families have decided to downsize because they found that for them, both of the parents working was not a good option. Um, so they downsized and they, they really prescribed to minimalism and that lifestyle and they made it work for them. 
um, others decided to hire a coach, right? And help them and in structuring what that might look like for them um, and, and prioritize what matters most, right? Mm. Yeah. So it's definitely possible. I've, I've found that the vast majority of people who want to homeschool can. It's their mindset and the limitations around their existing reality that makes them believe that they can't. So, or their willingness to make an investment in certain things. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. My last question for you is what advice would you give to parents for whom homeschooling is not an option or not something they're interested in, but who are interested in incorporating a Montessori or Montessori inspired approach into their home? Okay. Um, so somebody who's maybe they're doing school, does that what I mean? I'm kind of, mm-hmm. um, I would say stop focusing on the curriculum, (laughs) right? To my point, um, realize that, you know, uh, being Montessori inspired means that you take aspects of things. And I think that sometimes we, again, that's that white, that whiteness, right? That lives inside of us. That's just like things, 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 curriculum, learning, academic, um, a lot of parents who come to me for my lifestyle programs are, are, are in this position and um, almost all of them want to supplement uh, traditional education um, with Montessori at home. So they want to kind of recreate, do a little bit of like after schooling, some people are calling it. But to me, that's a very uh, un- Montessori inspired, Montessori uninspired approach, because what's really, really Montessori, what drives the whole thing, right, is the methodology and the philosophy. And if we are constantly, if the child's experience is they're going to school all day, getting academics, and they come back home, and they get more academics, and it's just school, 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 like, where's the, the holistic education that you were looking for your child? Right. So I think the advice would be let go of how your child is going to learn academics. Instead, focus on conscious parenting. And if you want to do something um, more hands on and activities and stuff like that, then focus on how you can complement, not supplement, complement your child's education at home. Right. So complimenting means that you are not repeating what they're doing in a different way, right? Which is what a lot of parents want to do. A lot of parents say, well, they're learning very abstractly in traditional school, and I want to do it with with manipulatives at home. I want to do it the Montessori way, right? So here's the hard truth that people don't like me saying. That's not possible. It's not possible. You're just going to waste your money. on Montessori materials, because the Montessori materials, you'll start using them as manipulatives. So rather than spending hundreds of dollars uh, to teach them two plus two with golden beads, just spend $5 on Unifix cubes, because it's going to have the same purpose, right? The Montessori curriculum is taught almost flip-flopped from, from a traditional curriculum, right? Um, we start concretely, they start abstractly, right? They use concrete materials to confirm what they've been showed. And we use materials to discover an outcome. It is a completely different purpose for those materials. So don't waste your money on those. Instead, focus on on complementing things that they're not getting in school, whether that's social justice education, right? Whether that is a cultural um, subjects and real history, right? At home, um, in my opinion, practical life. That is gravely lacking in traditional schools, right? And practical life can continue to forever, right? It just it takes a different form. So if you want to do after schooling, sure, set up some shelves, but may focus on the culture, focus on social justice, on history, on practical life, on those things that they are not getting um, 
that they're not getting in school. And of course, grounded when respect for the child and conscious parenting. Yeah. Oh, that's great advice. So is there anything that um, I didn't ask you about that you wanted to say before we say goodbye? Um, I don't, nothing specific, just thank you. Thank you for, for giving me the platform and for making the time. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I really appreciate you taking the time to share all of these experiences with us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again to Linda for joining me for this conversation. You can follow Linda on Instagram at the Montessori teacher. You can find the link to her Instagram account as well as links to other accounts that she mentioned in the episode description. You can follow Multilingual Montessori on Instagram at multilingual.montessori and you can find more resources for raising bilingual and multilingual children from a Montessori perspective at multilingualmontessori.org. Please subscribe to the Multilingual Montessori podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would be so grateful if you left a five-star rating. It helps more people find the show. If you'd like to join the Patreon community to help keep the podcast running, you'll find the link to that in the episode description. Another wonderful way to support the podcast is to share it with someone who you think would enjoy it as well. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.